As the Money Burns is an original podcast by Nikki Woodard. Based on historical research, this is a deep exploration into what happened to a set of actual heirs and heiresses to some of America's most famous fortunes when the Great Depression hit. Each episode has three primary sections. Section 1 is a narrative story. Section 2 goes deeper into the historical facts. Section 3 focuses on contemporary, emotional, and personal connections. Story Recap in New York, teen heiresses Barbara Hutton and Doris Duke join the elite debutante season, while Cobina Wright celebrates the opening of the Met Opera. Now back to As the Money Burns. Merry Widows. A doting mother always wants her child to blossom, but sometimes the child, especially a teenager, grows outside of reach. Please note, for those with younger listeners, this episode contains mature subject matter involving the world's oldest profession. Section 1 Story Fall in Boston the leaves are changing, but other things remain the same. Babyface, richest boy, Huntington Hartford, is off at Harvard for his freshman year. His mother, Henrietta, is very interested in Huntington making all the right connections and hopes he joins one of the prestigious dining clubs, Porcellian, a top choice. Only Huntington despises all things that remind him of his days back at St. Paul's, where his glorious academic and athletic senior year ended in a cheating scandal. A few of his classmates matriculate with him. Therefore, the black mark of cheater follows him into university. A summer away was not long enough to erase the memory. But mother and son made it back in time for the glorious America's Cup. Inspired, Huntington is determined to make his own path. That is, if he can ever truly get away from his smothering, doty mother. For the moment, she has stayed behind at Sea Verge in Newport to finish overseeing the completion of a brand new glass gymnasium built for Huntington to continue playing tennis and squash under any weather all year. The breather is much needed by the young heir, only the proximity still means regular visits from Henrietta, who has returned to Boston this very weekend. Fortunately, Huntington has a space in the dormitories, once again to encourage socialization. His roommate is Ned Rollins, another St. Paul's classmate and one of the few unoffended by the prior scandal. Ned himself is hardly a focused student and much more into fun. Exactly what Huntington needs. Always up for a good time and financed by Huntington's ample wallet and funds, the two boys score some bootleg liquor via special delivery to start off the evening's activities. Luckily, Henrietta is occupied with her other passion, flower shows. This first November weekend, she participates in the annual Massachusetts Horticultural Society show giving Huntington a break from Henrietta's hovering eye. Though Huntington sponsors the liquor, he imbibes very little, but is more than happy to pay for accepting others. However, this night, Huntington is buzzing pretty harshly. With a little more prodding, Ned encourages Huntington to join an excursion to a particular house of ill repute on the outskirts of Cambridge. As they approach the house, Huntington nervously fidgets with a small tin in his pocket. His sweaty hands tremble. The very inebriated Ned is far more relaxed. They enter the house with its plush interiors, 
Henrietta would not approve of the decorating taste, nor the company. These are not the kind of girls society approves of. Ned moseys up to one of the bedrooms while Huntington waits his turn. A buxom girl, not at all like the upper-class snobs, grabs his hand and pulls him into her lair. Sloppy kisses, fumbling around, Hunt opens the little metal tin and the fishkin flops onto the floor. Stupefied, Hunt isn't sure if he should pick it up or the condition of germs in this place. The more experienced girl picks it up and slips it on. Hunt stares dumbfounded and lost. She kisses him again, pushes him down, then jumps on for the ride. In the early gray dawn, Huntington, with a big goofy smile on his face, is on his way back to Harvard on the 7 a.m. trolley. Over at the flower show, Henrietta wins a gold medal with her 25 chrysanthemums arrangement, along with 10 other first prizes and three second prizes. Mrs. William H. Vanderbilt wins seven first place, one second place, and two third place prizes in the vegetables category. Of course, their gardeners are the actual winners. Henrietta meets Huntington for a celebratory meal and notices his Cheshire grin. He's more floaty than normal, and it concerns her. She is more used to his sullen silence. Maybe Harvard is good for him. While cutting his food, Henrietta babbles over flowers, the sea verge renovations, shopping, and other plans. Huntington nods on, but is only thinking about the night before. Something inside of him awakened and ready to roar. When his thoughts suddenly shift, what if he catches something? What are the symptoms of syphilis? What if that girl becomes pregnant and tracks him down? Over the next few weeks, he fears every little symptom and unexpected ring or letter. His change in demeanor reassures Henrietta as she has been saying how much she misses seeing him too. Such a good, concerned, and loving son, she has to make sure he remains unsullied by the harsh world. Delightfully, Henrietta exclaims, I found the most charming apartment at Copley Plaza and am enrolling in an economic class for the winter session. It will be wonderful. We can study together. Real terror strikes deep into Huntington's heart. Section 2, History and Historiography When stories typically cover this period, it is always from very few particular angles that, while fun and fascinating, do not fully explore the era. The predominant tales cover prohibition, gangsters, and the Great Depression, mostly through the poorest or middle-class existence, and only a few of the top financial losses. The banking and financial history is relatively nameless to the average person. I'm sure heavy business and financial historians, advisors, and enthusiasts can recognize the names, but the names seem to be more the specialists who give us the theory and explanations, not the participants. John Maynard Keynes and John Kenneth Galbraith are good references. We know the politicians, Hoover, Roosevelt, Jesse Jones, and others who guided the nation through troubled times, their failures and triumphs. In contrast, we readily know the names of gangsters. Anyone can name plenty of those, often even with only one name. Capone, Bugsy, Costello, Babyface, Nelson, Bonnie and Clyde, Lansky, Lucky, Luciano. Only a handful of federal agents join in the recognition, and that being primarily Agent Elliot Ness and his untouchables. 
The crime lords involved in bootleg and liquor were the Robin Hoods of the 20s, yielding as they get arrested to the later bank robbers that will become more prevalent in the 30s, especially during the banking crisis of the Great Depression. But there are huge societal shifts and transitions occurring between these two eras. An overlap that affects everyone and around the world. There is no one pocket unaffected or completely immune. An individual may not be directly involved, but maybe their neighbor, friend, or family member, indirectly, somehow, some way, likely will be. As the era of prohibition still reigns, the three major crimes are bootlegging, gambling, and prostitution. Crime is rampant and all over the newspapers. As I comb through articles covering whatever topic, I run across snippets of bank robberies, gangsters, and now, prostitution. I am constantly going off on little tangents, amused as stories cross over and unravel, sometimes accidentally and at other times while rooting out and or verifying a detail or fact. As I finished the last episode, I saw articles relating to crime and prostitution, already knowing the next episode would be of Huntington's first time as detailed in his biography, Squandered Fortune. From one Munster, Indiana article, there are the list of fines and sentences from one court day in East Chicago. Two for petite larceny, $25 and six months on a penal farm. Concealed weapon, $5 and reckless driving, $1 plus for both cost. Two violating state liquor, $100. One got 30 days in county jail and the other 45 days on a penal farm. Two women for prostitution, $10 and 10 days in county. Another keeping a house of ill repute, $10 and 90 days on a penal farm. Adjusting for inflation, $10 and $100 in 1930 equate to $164 and $1,640 in 2021. There wasn't only a concern about lawbreakers, but those enforcing the law as well. Plenty of tales of police corruption were also rampant. Particularly the Plain Clothes Division. The detectives who investigate bootlegging and prostitution were considered the most corruptible. Many police initially resisted taking the position out of uniform because of the long associations with bookmakers, pimps, runners, and prostitutes wasn't considered respectable. Particularly, married men avoided such assignments. Going back as far as when Theodore Roosevelt served as the police commissioner back in the mid-1890s, the plainclothes detectives were problematic, and Roosevelt could do little to change the dynamics. By 1929 and 1930, the situation had definitely not improved. When 27-year-old Elliot Ness takes on the special investigation of Al Capone in late 1930 Chicago, Ness assesses different prohibition agents' records, then pulls together a team of 6 to 10 uncorruptible agents known as the Untouchables. Meanwhile, New York's vice had to contend with its own scandal about police corruption. In November to December 1930 at the New York's Women's Court, Self-proclaimed stool pigeon, Chile Mapacto Acuna, appeared on the witness stand detailing his involvement with New York Inspector Ryan on several investigations into prostitution that resulted in bribery and blackmail. In court, Ryan denied the charges, but Acuna detailed his rise from dishwasher to vice falcon for the special squad. Acuna would collect information on select women who would then be targeted by the police for bribes and payoffs. He covered 150 houses and claimed at least 40 women were innocent. In August 1929, the police turned against him and arrested him, after which he squealed. During the trial, Acuna received $7 a day in pay as a witness and had six police bodyguards referred to as the Chili Squad. One was promoted while on duty during the trial. 
women were barred from the testimony while the men present averted their eyes away from the informant. More acceptable public terms for brothel or whorehouse were disorderly houses and houses of ill fame. Chile Acuna estimates at least 1,000 disorderly houses operate in the greater New York area, with many having police protection. The results of the trial by early 1931, five former Vice Squad members were sent to Sing Sing. Fifteen more went to trial for perjury. Fourteen were dishonorably dismissed after department trials. Twenty-one were waiting similar trials. Three hundred Vice Squad officers were transferred to regular patrol duty. Two stool pigeons were under indictment and fugitives. Two bondsmen were convicted and sent to jail. Three judges were removed from women's court. Four magistrates resigned. Two magistrates removed from the appellate division. The whole personnel of the magistrate's court had been transferred during the general shakeup. Chile would write a book, Women for Sale, in 1931. He would thank Governor Franklin Roosevelt for pardoning the framed women and several among others in aiding in the investigations and righting the wrongs, including Lieutenant Joseph Kennedy. Not sure if the actual Joe Kennedy or family member, ages and professions don't line up, so this might only be a random coincidence in name. In his book, Acuna detailed his upbringing as the son of a very rich man, a blue-blooded aristocrat in his home country, Chile, hence his nickname. He remarks how he had the standard opinions of the rich towards the poor, how they were a bit lazy or not too bright to be in their situations. They just needed to be more industrious in their decisions. He wanted to move to the U.S. against his father's wishes, so Acuna sold off his stakes in some wine country given to him by his grandmother. He moved to New York with several thousand dollars and had a good life until the money ran out, and so did his friends. Unwilling to call his father for help, as that would require him returning home, Acuna hawked what he could and struggled to find suitable employment, which he had always thought would be readily available, but wasn't. Wandering the streets one cold January night, he found a sign for a dishwasher and went in. Having served in the military, he felt prepared for more KP-type duties if it meant eating. The owner hired him that night. Chile would rise up to counterman and waiter, then found the love of his life, another immigrant, the beautiful blonde Sonia. They would move to Washington, D.C., but returned to New York in the mid-1920s. By then, Chile struggled to make ends meet in the more costly city with a wife and child. One night, a policeman asked him about any brothels, and Chile told him about two locations he had heard about. The policeman returned later, giving Chile $50 for the information. That led to him getting involved as an informant. Chile saw himself as partially being Sherlock Holmes. He often remarks with pride his adjustment to the harsher realities of life and taking them on and relatively succeeding. He acknowledges most of his rich friends born into wealth like he was have no skills nor endurance to undertake the harsher survival realities of the poor working classes. He talks with great pride of his hard work and ability to adjust to his circumstances. An interesting and prescient thought as the world begins to tumble down around everyone. Circumstances are changing. And in a matter of weeks, in our storyline, the world will plunge deeper into what we all recognize as the Great Depression. Section 3, Contemporary and Personal Relevance. My historical background has included sexual history in various periods and contexts. Most prominently, my master's thesis from the University of Chicago focused on an international historical survey of virginity. 
Shortly afterwards, I worked on several History Channel shows involving sex and wars, including Sex in the Civil War and Sex in World War II. Though I didn't get assigned as the researcher at my company, I assisted the additional research request as needed. Both had interesting takes on the prevention of venereal diseases. But in developing this story, I had a very funny correlating experience. My uncle is big into metal detecting, so every Christmas Eve when I'm at his house, he shows me that year's finds. It's a collection of great physical remnants from another past as he finds an item, then researches it. Cigarette tokens, belt buckles, old two-bits for bar credits, lighters, one fabulous Masonic ring, even found a lady's missing engagement ring and returned it to her. Every year, more and more. Earlier, while I was developing this idea for a TV show, he was again showing me that year's collection. There was this tiny metal tin about the size of a large coin. The words engraved, Three Merry Widows. And the idea was to collect the three ladies, Agnes, Mabel, and Becky. He asked me if I knew what they were, and I had no idea. It was a condom tin. One of his favorite hunting grounds is near the lake where an old WPA work camp was set up. The place was littered with these condom tins. As part of the club, my uncle located a former worker and interviewed him about the finds. When asked about the condoms, the man smiled and nodded. We sure knew how to have fun back then, but we weren't dumb enough to talk about it. Check Instagram at As the Money Burns for a pic of the find. One man's trash is another man's treasure, but the question remains, who gets the most pleasure? Next, when we return to As the Money Burns, tough financial times for some former debutantes to focus on finding work, not husbands. Could this be the future fate of this year's debts? Until then. As the Money Burns is an original podcast written, produced, and voiced by Nikki Woodard based on historical research. Archival music has been provided by Past Perfect Vintage Music. Check out their website at www.pastperfect.com. Please come visit us at As the Money Burns via Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Transcripts, timeline, episode guide, and character bios are available at asthemoneyburns.com.